to the Logically Faithful podcast. This podcast is created to point seekers towards the beautiful, the good and the true, and to act on what gives liberty, equality and justice for all. This podcast is created to give listeners a taste of the beautiful, cultivate an affection for the good and to provide rational path to the true, helping to bring justice, equality and liberty to our society. Your host is Khaldun Swice, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the City Colleges of Chicago and Tutor of Philosophy with Oxford University. Well, welcome ladies and gentlemen to the Logically Faithful podcast. I appreciate you being with us. Uh, once again, if you'd like to be uh, connected to the things we're doing and uh, the updates, go ahead and sign up on LogicallyFaithful.com. And of course on iTunes, uh, go ahead and leave a review there. That would be appreciated to help me to continue doing what I'm doing. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I have a very special guest today, Adam Barkman. Adam Barkman is also one of our, as a professor, just like myself, and I'm, well, usually what I do in these is get, read off the, the bios of the gentleman or the professor in, in dealing with this. But I would like to give Adam some of the, the leeway to, to discuss why he does what he does and the background he has in teaching philosophy at Redeemer University uh, and the reason he does it. And because one of the things that striked me about Adam is picking up a book that he had written called The Imitating the Saints, Christian Philosophy and Superhero Mythology. And this book really uh, inspired me to really dig deeper into this entire genre, which I found to be fascinating as a child. And as, even as an adult, I can't seem to get myself away from those. I'd like to get Adam's feedback on that. So Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Khaldun. I know you're an author of a half a dozen books and a bunch of other stuff on philosophy and the superheroes. What is it that invigorates you? What, what is it that inspires you to continue doing what you're doing? Well, I think it's two parts. I mean, one, one part is I really like um, comparative mythology and uh, the philosophy of mythology. Why do so many cultures have similar stories? Uh, and why are these stories the foundation of all later philosophies? So the comparative end is what really is interesting for me. And uh, I find superheroes really tap into that. They are an extension of our mythology. They are um, a, a version of our mythology. And so that, that, that's, that's one uh, thing that's fascinated me. The other thing, though, is uh, my, my connection with C.S. Lewis. So I started out doing work on Lewis. And uh, C.S. Lewis is a popularizer. And he was very interested in bringing Christianity to the common man. And, uh, and I found that uh, his, his gift for doing that was part mythology, tapping into the stories that we all understand as, as people in culture, and yet um, able to kind of extrapolate and explain in a deeper way some of the meaning of these things. And so Lewis was one of the, the venues that I, I, that I was interested in, and that led me to explore superheroes. Interesting with Lewis. He talks a lot about myth with his work with Tolkien and others uh, regarding mythology. Um, now, myth has different connotations of the word. Uh, in culture, especially in, in the common parlance of what actually Absolutely. a myth is. Uh, how would you relate that to how Lewis would see myth or how these uh, literary experts would see myth? Uh, how, can you break that word down for us? Yeah, it's, it's, good. it's a really good question. So uh, the common usage of myth would be something like a fantastic but false story. And, uh, you know, it's, so it's seen as appropriate for, for children who want to have an imaginative experience but something we need to grow out of as we get older mm -hmm. and uh, and leave behind. They, it served its purpose as uh, facilitating imagination. Right. Like Grimm's, Grimm's fairy tales and things of that nature? Absolutely. So okay. the Andrew Lang, uh, mm -hmm. you know, your green uh, book of fairy tales and your orange and your yellow, and, <laughs> and it's this sort of Victorian snobbery toward fairy tales. They're good for kids, but, mm -hmm. you know, when we get older, we don't wear Superman undies anymore, right? Right, right. Um, oh. So, but for Lewis, it's different. Um, for him, he saw God communicating to us in two different ways. The one is through, of course, reason. So Christ is described as the logos, right? This, this rational argument for God. Uh, and so reason has always been a fundamental part of the way God communicates to us in rational principles. But the other is, for Lewis, these stories. Um, he calls them dreams. And uh, Lewis uh, says that God has kind of given these to all different cultures. And in these dreams, we see certain types of concrete um, uh, stories or archetypes, if you like, that um, will communicate ultimately something that he wants to achieve, either through Christ or through the end of the world or through certain types of things that make life, in fact, a story or a myth. 
Give us an example of one of your favorites in the mythological enterprise and how that connects, maybe even using the superhero genre of how, oh, okay. how so, would these stories would make sense of life. Yeah, so, you know, take, uh, for example, we'll take a classic. So the uh, the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got this, this, this king who's gone off to war in a foreign land, and he's been gone for years and years and years. And uh, the people back in Ithaca, where this king is from, start to doubt that he's still alive. And, and all the people start to rebel against that. And only a few remain faithful, namely his wife and his son and a couple of um, lesser known you know, servants. Right. And uh, eventually, through obstacle and trial, we see this hero um, face all sorts of temptations, whether it's a temptress or whether it's you know, living off on this island of immortality or other things. Uh, but slowly he comes back and he returns and he returns disguised and few recognize him and the great moment he's in the hall and he his disguise is removed and he's revealed to be the true king now and those who are with him come to his side of the table and those who are against him on the other side and right. and and there we have the moment of um, the climax of the story right the hero is returned and he's going to set things right and this is something we see, of course, played out in many different stories. And when his wife back in the process, right? From all the stories. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. But, but she's remained faithful and became a paradigm of faithfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, this is the same sort of thing that we see played out, for example, um, across cultures and different types of stories. We see it repeated with Tolkien, with Aragorn, who returns uh, in book three of the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, for C.S. Lewis, this is uh, what he calls a Christ type. And this embodies a certain type of uh, narrative that in form is true, that the king will be shunned by most, and some, a few will remain faithful, and yet the king will return and set things right on that day. And those who are with him will be with him and will be spared, and those against will be like the men in the, the hall slaughtered, right? Right, right. So we see, we see there... Um, you know, what Lewis calls an instance of myth, and in Christ, for Lewis, we see this sort of historical embodiment of what has partly happened, and in future will be more uh, fulfilled. The return of the king is, is, is to happen, right? And these stories, these myths are in every culture, in every area of the entire world. There is no culture, no community, no village without the stories that make it what it is, is there? that are passed down from one generation to the other to inspire courage and inspire uh, heroism, to help people overcome the odds. Almost every culture, at least I've come across them, have used these in one way or another to be able to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So if you look across, I mean, one of, one of my interests is in comparative mythology. So mm -hmm. if you look over in uh, Mesopotamia, you've got the, the dragon slayer motif. You've got Marduk, the, 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 this, this young god, the son of the, the king of the gods, basically, and he fights against this primordial sea dragon, Tiamat. Right. And we have the dragon slayer motif played out. And again, this is exactly what Christ is doing in, in the, the book of Revelation or the Apocalypse of John. Right? We have Satan as the dragon, and he is to be overcome and slain. Right? And we see that with Hercules against the Hydra, Apollo with Python, and uh, you go across the globe. It's everywhere. Uh um, are you familiar with the work of Joseph Campbell? Um, I mean, you've mentioned it in some of the yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Joseph Campbell is um, is one of these guys that um, is in the same sort of spirit of Lewis, mm -hmm. uh, and he's probably the most important popularizer of taking myths seriously. Right. Um, it, again, it's his approach is a bit different than Lewis. the The claim is not so much that there has to be a god that gives us these dreams or these ideas. But there is a claim, a kind of Jungian claim, that there are these archetypes that are just wired into us, um, basic to us, if you like. Mm -hmm. And um, and so he is, I would say, if, if to lose Louisian language, he's kind of an ally in this same charge, right? There's this idea of the archetypal myths that um, God is giving to us for a certain purpose, and uh, and so Campbell would be part of that uh, that. That broad group, if you like. Right. And this is something he said in, his, in The Power of Myth. He said, um, people say that what we're seeking is meaning for life. I don't think that is what we're really seeking. I think what we're really seeking is an experience of being alive. So that life experiences on the purely physical plane will have renaissance or, or a, uh, with 
our inmost being and reality. So we actually feel the rapture or the rupture of being alive. And he says in these stories, it brings to life that sense of being alive. And you see that in these other characters, whether they're mythological or not, whether it's Rocky Balboa or Superman or whoever it is. And we see that in them and we want to emulate that at one level. Um, and, and that seems to be universal in that, in that regard. I'd like to touch base on that and how that relates to the Messiah figure later on in our, in our discussion. Um, Absolutely. In, in studying the, uh, the concepts of this, the superhero genre, one of the big things they're, they're, uh, that separates it from the regular mythology and others is the visual. With the advent of the comic book, the graphic novel, things of that nature. What is it about the visual itself, in your experience, has, um, has enthralled the, the younger generations in more than it has maybe in the past? Or maybe am I just seeing that now because in my own, as I'm older, I'm seeing things in new eyes. As I'm younger, I'm catching things. You know, things look interesting. Things look incredible. Uh, the Incredible Hulk. Oh, come on. That's amazing. I want to, I want to read about him and see what his struggle about his inner, his inner fight among him, with himself. But, but there, seems, there seems to be something deeper about it, though, about the power of the visual to capture our attention. Can you speak about that? Yeah, so I think there's actually a couple things going on there. First of all, the oldest cultures in the world have used pictures to communicate before there was written words. Pictures do speak more than one thing. So a picture is more nuanced than a word. Now, philosophers, and I'm one of them, uh -huh. we like words because we like precision. In logic, we don't want too much nuance. Uh, but some things, uh, you know, to use Wordsworth's phrase, we murder to dissect. Ooh, In other words, yeah. if, we, mm -hmm. if, we, if, we, if we try to dissect a story too much, uh, we might lose some elements of truth that was in this package, right? If we think... Um, you know, the sort of picture of Odysseus or Aragon or Superman uh, is is reducible to simply a strong leader or a, or a, or something of that sort. Mm -hmm. Missed it. The, the the idea of a king is different than the idea of a president. Um, and again, to dissect a president or a king and say, well, they're just like presidents, they're both leaders of their country, mm -hmm. you, you miss something. There's something more going on there. Um, a gun is not a sword. They both are for killing. They're both martial weapons. Right. But one's mythical in a way that the other is not. Uh, and so, again, some of the things in myth, uh, we can kind of say this probably points to this, and we can try to understand some of the logical ideas that's trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. But if we press it too far, we become like the, um, the Stoics or the, um, the later Greek philosophers who look at the, um, the Greek mythology with kind of scorn and say, well, you know, it's all about cracking the shell and getting the nugget. Uh, Lewis, Lewis said that there's there's more to the even the nugget inside is not um, completely reducible to one thing or the other. Uh, these are parts of the ways that God speaks um, a little bit with ambiguity. I mean, if God wanted everything to be clear, He would just say it. Some things He is trying to communicate with um, pictures because some people understand with pictures better than with words. And are our stories a form of uh, grafting a picture? Absolutely, yeah. So stories are, are, are basically, I mean, depends on who you're talking to, but certainly the oldest stories were trying to paint a picture for us of what would, this would look like and what would that would look like. Mm -hmm. And often we would have them on cave paintings or on Egyptian hieroglyphs. You have the story and the picture are, are one, right? I, I, if you go to, I was at the Valley of the Kings a few years back, mm -hmm. and if you look at the story of, um, of uh, Osiris, judging the soul in the underworld mm. it's it's there's there's writing underneath it but there's this picture on top it shows you visually what these the story is and it reinforces the words or maybe even um, surpasses the words in this sort of nuance and so i think a graphic novel or a comic book actually has power to do things that um well again they're not you can't often get as much um sort of uh literal uh, message across as you could in a 800-page you know, novel, but again, in a 200-page comic book or graphic novel, if you like, there's often as much content there as you would get in an 800-page book hmm. in terms yeah. of the visual richness, right? And certainly in terms of inspiration. What makes me want to be a better man? You know, I can, I, I, I love my my philosophers, but if I pick up a Superman comic, I want to go help a poor person on the street in a way that sometimes reading Kant doesn't make me want to do it. <laughs> I, I hear you, I hear like you brother. Uh, these, these images uh, that I was mentioned, the power of the visual, uh, there's so much more to say about this. Um, I'm thinking right now of 
uh, Neil Postman's book, The Entertaining Ourselves to Death, right? where he argues the common man uh, is caught up in the superficial. And this is nothing new. This has been the case throughout the beginning of the, the, the civilization. Absolutely. Uh, but those in charge or those who are an elite capitalize on that and feed us feed us the superficial, the empty, the, 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 the little nuggets of things that we can actually handle. And are, are, um, are we giving into that by, by uh, uh, encouraging our young people or encouraging people in general to read these books, these comics or these uh, cartoons or um, these, these stories that have these images? Are we feeding the, 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 the lust for the superficial rather than a desire for the, the true, the good, and the beautiful and something in more in-depth like a good novel where the mind has to create the images itself um, so is there something to be said about the power of the visual as opposed to the power of the word? Uh, I, I, let me just conclude with this one. Uh, Krista Nihiber, uh, her and her team did some research on the human brain and found that an image takes up to 60, um, is read 60 times faster, six, yeah, 60,000 times faster than the written word by the brain. It catches it, it, in, it, it ingrains it in itself, and it gets the attention of the person more. This is capitalized by places like Facebook and Twitter and others. Whenever something is posted on Facebook or on Twitter, it gets a certain amount of readership. But when it's posted with an image, that jumps exponentially higher when you have an image or some kind of um, uh, story connected with it. Can you talk, comment about that? Yeah, so I, I, absolutely. I mean, there, there's the danger. There's always a danger. You know, Aristotle said um, truth or virtue lies between two extremes, right? There's a danger of only looking at pictures, but there's benefit to be gained from other ways of learning, right? To imagine you could just read uh, comic books all day and you would get what you need. Well, then where's Plato's Republic? Where's the Bible? Where's, you know, you're missing a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you imagine only abstract concepts through words, or if you can create uh, worlds through your own imagination, you might not be creating the world that, for example, God wants to give you through the visual image. Okay. God tells us he's a king. Uh, again, if we try to leave it up to our imagination what a king might look like, well, Again, depends on what country you are, depends what we think a king looks like in our country. We might not get the image that God specifically wants with some of that. So again, I think that there's um, you know, a proper amount of negotiation. You need to know yourself, right? Am I inclined to only read comic books? Well, then maybe it's time to set them aside and pick up your republic, uh, which is probably, frankly, the bigger danger nowadays, especially with undergrad students, right? Mm -hmm. but, but at the same time, again, we mustn't discount the value of the visual. Christ is a visual image of God. He is giving us an image of what we need. If God wanted us to just be theoretical, abstract thinkers, living a high, virtuous life, mm -hmm. uh, there's very little reason to become incarnate and go through all the ropes of that. There's something about the visual, the story, God is making a story with creation, first and foremost. He wants us to be sons. He doesn't want us to be servants. He doesn't want us to be rocks. And that means it requires a kind of soul-making. We need to be in a world of challenges and struggles. And uh, again, the way we're, we're made is to sort of visually and connect with things. And so when God comes into the world, as he does, we have this kind of um, ability to connect in a much higher way than if we were purely abstract thinkers. We're not angels, we're <laughs> men. And so I think we need to balance out mm -hmm. the two aspects of what we do. And Pascal talked about the man being the, the balance between the beast and the angel, and we are a combination yeah. of the both, right? Uh, the, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, the terrestrial and the divine together uh, in, that, in that eternal perpetual struggle among right. the inside of us. Uh, comment on um, Dostoevsky um, and where he said that life excuse me, that art starts by mimicking life, then life mimics art, then art finds its very meaning in the arts. <laughs> well, it's uh, a complex idea. Yeah, can you unpack that a little bit, how that would relate to the, the culture of the, um, the mythology of superheroes? So you, the life imitates art is, is, is the idea, right? That's the first part you said? Well, yeah, well, the artists okay. come across as saying, all we're doing in our art uh -huh. is imitating life. I mean, if, life, if in life there's murder, betrayal, adultery, theft... Uh, arson. Hey, we're just mimicking that in our work, rather than and then. But, yeah. but the problem is that Dostoevsky was capitalizing on this back then. Is that life begins to mimic the art, where people begin to mimic their heroes, their uh, idols, 
And then art finds its very meaning, um, excuse me, life might, finds its very meaning in the arts itself. I wanted, I wanted to unpack that. Well, so again, there's, there's many types of stories out there. There are stories that try to capture um, what we might call history, right, which is the, the grit and maybe um, some of the, the ugliness and the complexities of the particular, as Aristotle would say, the, the daily lives. There's no heroes in history in that sense. There's always people who fail. But for Aristotle, literature was the higher form than history because literature allows us to tap into these, these more uh, universal ideas, right? And so again, if we, we think highest art is simply uh, pure realism where we look at, you know, like uh, uh, take Game of Thrones, for example, you know, the idea that um, this is a more realistic fantasy where every character is flawed, no one's perfectly virtuous, and this is um, seen as the highest type of fantasy or something. Right, right. For Aristotle, that's balderdash, right? I mean, I like Game of Thrones like anyone. But the idea that you could have great art without um, people to look up to and inspire to, to develop virtue, which is our, our prime purpose in becoming these types of sons of God. Mm. Right? In order to achieve our real purpose, we need to understand why we're here, but also to become the kind of person that would truly be able to be uh, with God, enjoy heaven, if you like, in Lewis's phrase. And so, again, mere realism won't do that for us. We need something that is, is above the grit of the particular, without saying that history is bad and, and not worth studying. Of course it is. Mm -hmm. We need things that are also more um, universal or, or transcendent, if you like. We need our heroes to still be heroes. And those heroes inspire us and move us forward, even if they're mythological. Absolutely. It doesn't matter so much. I mean, take Job in the Bible, for example. You know, one man says Job was a real person. Another man says he wasn't. Mm. Again, I'm not invested in this debate. I'm not a biblical scholar. But I know what Lewis said. Mm. It doesn't matter, right? What matters for Lewis is what does Job try to communicate for us? What is Job supposed to be an example of so that we can learn to either be like him or not like him? What is God trying to teach us through these stories? Right, about the consequence of being unfaithful or the um, or you know again what happens when we are faithful right how God uh, works with us right so again the the, the story is is um, teaching us a truth even through um, nonfiction if you like or fiction there's a, a book called one moment in time and it was built, built up on something else from Marvel comics it was about spider-man where he had um, one of the villains uh, tracked him down when he had revealed his identity in the uh, Civil War. Uh, oh, oh, that went, oh that, yes. The, yeah, the, the whole thing, Civil War event that happened in Marvel Comics, which he capitalized on in the movies. But um, in revealing his identity, one of his um, arch enemies found out where he was. Well, I don't know if he was his arch enemy. Anyway, fired off a shot because of his spider sense. He was able to avoid it, but not Aunt May, his own, his, his, uh, his favorite aunt. And she yep. was in the process, almost dead. And Spider-Man does everything he can to find a way to heal her or find her uh, a way to get her out of this and he goes to the mystical master of the arts uh, Doctor Strange which in itself was I thought what a, a brilliant comic film that has so many different mythologies and, and philosophical con uh, perceptions in it, including an attack on atheism and an attack on um, mysticism yeah. and others uh, but anyway, Doctor Strange recommends something to him. He says, I'm not sure if we should do this he, he, he goes through it, he, he's not satisfied and then he finally meets Mephisto which is the incarnation of the devil in the Marvel comics. Of course, there's a difference, of course, but he's, he's pretty awesome. close to it. And Mephesto says, I want something from you, and I want it more than anything else. We'll say, I want your happiness, but I want your marriage. Mm. And as I was reading this, um, you know, a lot of us, I've been married about 12, 13 years now. I'm thinking, wow, that really sparked me. Even as I'm reading this comic, um, as I was preparing my lectures for others, it sparked me to think, maybe the real devil also still wants my marriage. It made me mm. stop and think. And this is mm. coming from the anti-hero, or not the anti the, the, the greatest of the villains, right? Sparked right, me to right. rethink how I could become a better husband, how I could focus on, on my own marriage. Uh, because that's what the devonic wants. The destruction of the very structure of society, which is our marriage. Our marriages, isn't it? You want to comment on that with Spider-Man and other yeah, no, heroes? I, you know, it's, it's, it's brilliant to mention. This is one of my favorite comics of all time, and it's one that's loathed by many Spider-Man fans hmm. because it's so heartbreaking. You've spent 700 issues getting to the point where Spider-Man is now 
married to Mary Jane and happy with her and things go well, and then you're asked the great question. But this is, again, one of those great moments, right? This is one of those moments that, that is real in the most important sense. Satan takes Jesus to the top of the mountain. Mm. Right? Just, I'll give you all this if you worship me, right? I'll give you everything if you just do this one thing, right? The, the great moment of temptation, the trade-off, right? Will Peter Parker trade his marriage to save the life of his aunt? Mm. And again, the hard decisions you need to make there where he sees one as love and the other one as, well, uh, selfless love. The agape love is the love that is for Aunt May. And for Mary Jane, he sees it more in terms of eros, the, the, the valuable love, but the lesser thing. The ethical choice is the choice we're interested in here. Will you choose happiness or will you choose virtue? And again, we would like to think that they're always, you know, virtue leads to happiness. Right. We know that doesn't always happen, right? In the reboot of Spider-Man, he doesn't always end up with Mary Jane anymore. No. But the ethical choice is what makes you a hero. And that's why we read about Spider-Man. We're not interested in reading about some average guy who makes the wrong choice and the right choices half the time. We can see that choice there. And he's willing to give up his greatest love for what's right. Take Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Right. right? Give up his life for the love of his people. Right? And so there we see the, the, the moment of greatness for Spider-Man. And the question for us is, what is your trade-off? What's your price for being a good man? Right? What are we willing to, uh, what are we tempted with? And you know, when we're small and young, we're tempted with small things. As we develop in our Christian walk, God asks more of us. And as Lewis says, the master moves us on. Hmm. Right? He's, he's going to ask more of us because the goal is not for us to um, sit comfortable in pleasure. The goal is for us to become the kind of people that we were meant to be. And, and, these, that and these choices make up our lives, don't they? They, they, they? they determine the trajectory of our entire life. It could be a small, innocuous choice, isn't it? And we don't realize it at the time, but that choice ends up determining our destiny. Absolutely, yeah. And again, the, the question is, is it the right thing or the wrong thing to do? And when we look at Spider-Man, I mean, people didn't like it because they want Spider-Man to be happy. <laughs> but those who know what Spider-Man is supposed to be, you know, I mean, we could probably make a case that, you know, the ethical thing is for Mary Jane. I mean, I'm sure I could imagine a debate playing out among uh, students at a pub or something like that about how this might go. But uh, there, I think the, the the idea that we're trying to get is the, the greater love versus the lesser love or happiness versus what's right. And we couldn't expect Spider-Man to do anything less if he's really a hero. If he's really a hero, right. And then you end up with the conundrum of the anti-hero, right, which we could spend some time on. Um, it was yeah. one of... Um, yeah, I went to see the film... Uh, Deadpool, right? Yep. Which was the anti, the, the ultimate anti-hero. I was really disappointed by the 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 blatant disregard for virtue in the film. Completely blatant. I actually walked out toward the toward the tail end of it um, because of I was just so disappointed by that fact. But then again, this is what it is. It's the anti-hero who capitalizes on his vices and uses them to fight the criminals. Um, and of course, Hollywood wants to do what it can to to, to uh, increase the revenue in that regard. Let's talk about the anti-hero a little bit. How does the anti-hero inspire us or <laughs> move us in an opposite direction? Yeah, again, I think there's two things going on, both of which I agree with you I'm not a big fan of. The first is just purely in the terms of mythology. For yeah. Tolkien, yeah. good myth requires a kind of overarching serious type of tone, which matches what life is, an overarching serious type of tone. If, if right. life is right. the veil of soul-making, and hard choices where children are killed and wars happen. If that's the sort of overarching thing and developing virtue is the sort of the, the function of us in this sort of narrative, mm -hmm. then again, any type of story that tries to sort of uh, play overarching uh, with, with com uh, comedy, for example, is it might have its own value as comedy, but it's not myth. And therefore it's not, in my opinion, uh, a true superhero story. It's a, it's a parody of a superhero story, and it might have its place as parody, but we shouldn't right. confuse it with mythology or uh, true superhero mythology or stories. So I, I would sort of set, set it aside as something different. Um, I wouldn't sort of uh, admit it. You know, the 60s Batman, Adam West, Bird Ward, I'm a big fan, but again, it's not mythology. It's got its, it's, its own thing. Um, mm. This is not really Batman, if you like. 
Uh, Deadpool is not really a superhero. Uh, okay. But maybe okay. the more serious thing about Deadpool, which we don't get with the, you know, the 60s Batman, mm-hmm. Deadpool, um, he pokes fun, but he pokes fun of things that probably should not be poked fun of. Uh, the the true and the good and the beautiful, there's a certain amount of, uh, I think, awe we should have toward them or a kind of sacredness toward them. One of the Ten Commandments is don't take the Lord your God's name in vain, right? Don't blaspheme God. Right. That doesn't mean just saying OMG or something like that trivially. Yeah. It, it, I think it, it, it insults the sort of the sort of the numinal character of God, the sort of the holiness of God and kind of his 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 what he's about and what he wants us to be about, and a kind of cheapness or trivialness toward the things that make God really God. It's not God's power, it's not even God's like knowledge, it's God's character. If he wasn't good, he wouldn't be worth worshiping. You might, because he wants some benefit, but he wouldn't be God. And if you stripped of God of power, he would still be worth worshiping if he was perfectly good. And so, again, to insult the good in that way, I think, um, is something that should offend Christians, personally. Again, we might be able to make an argument for it as comedy in its own place, but again, the 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 line there. I think some comedy should have a line, and so I yeah. I, I agree with you. There's a yeah, and the um the the, the recent Logan film, which is um, uh, built on the old Man Logan comic series, right? Yeah, uh, some uh, creator or commentators are saying it's one of the best they've ever seen in regarding the struggle, the inner struggle, the existential struggle that people have, even as those who have these these super abilities to be able to change your world even they have to struggle within that um and he's considered like a type of anti-hero is he not uh, wolverine yeah so again wolverine's one of these complex characters i mean I, I i see him as the sir lancelot of the marvel world so we know lancelot is a hero in the sense that we're i mean what makes us good or bad men well in reality we're all flawed i, I think the question is our trajectory right what, are we aimed at the good or are we aimed at something less than the good. Mm. I think Wolverine is a character who is aimed at the good, and that makes him a hero, but his method of doing this, I think, is not wise. He kills people who don't need to be killed. That makes Batman a superior hero to him, or Daredevil. Well, Daredevil in the Netflix films, I think, kills a few people he probably doesn't need to as well, right? Uh, Or does he? I can't remember. No, I don't think he does, no. He always draws the line there, which is I want to talk about a little bit. Right. Maybe I'm thinking of Arrow, for example. On, Arrow on does, the, yes. Arrow does, right. Yeah. But again, one of the things that, you know, if you need to kill someone, and the only way to do that is to achieve the greater virtue of saving an innocent, then killing is the right thing to do. But if you don't need to kill someone and then you do it, then it's not justice. It's something else. Right? Justice is the correct proportion, treating each thing or person or situation correctly. And that means if you don't need to kill someone, then you should probably be much more cautious about doing so. So Wolverine is rash. Again, this attributed to his beast-like character, which he does need to overcome. We know that mm-hmm. uh, part of this is his sin-like nature, if you like, from uh, various things. He goes to Japan, right, to kind of meditate and control the beast like the Hulk does. And when he's in a controlled state, he's much less willing to kill in excess. Uh, but when that, that, that nature comes back, um, even though I think his, his trajectory is right, he, he's always going to do the right thing eventually. But his method of going about doing that is where I have a problem. So I, I put him firmly in the camp of hero, but a flawed hero. I, I don't call him an anti-hero in the way that, uh, for example, um, maybe Deadpool is. Right? He's not. You know, he might kill the bad guys, but it's not because he he's sort of opposed to that. Or the Suicide but Squad, again, for example. Suicide Squad. Yeah, yeah these yeah, guys yeah. don't. They don't do that for the right reasons, right? No, and no. you know, for Kant, doing things for the right reasons is the most important part of a moral act. If you, you know, if you hold a big check up there and saying, "Look how much I love the poor," and you're doing it to promote your business, <laughs> well, you might be helping people and doing a good thing, but you're not morally good for it. Mm-hmm. You're just helping people. Yeah, and Kant and, would argue that any, if you have any motivation other than a pure motive, a reasoned motivation anything that you can get out of it it wouldn't be good according to Kant of course that's it has right. its own problems doesn't it uh, yeah. uh, ethically theologically has its own problems how can you be Absolutely. really good yeah. without having some kind of enjoyment in what you're doing um, but it, it, there's a balance right Let, let's yeah. let's let's lead the conversation further on this so you have the, the Batman character who who struggles through his life to find justice 
And the way he finds justice, instead of um, giving himself into addictions and a life of crime and a life of despair, he builds his life as a life of discipline, a life of focus and some of the best trainers in the world. And because he has the money, he's able to get the best training and, of course, the most amazing gadgets he could possibly imagine. <laughs> um, but at the same time, the Batman character, although he's um, has a strong thirst for justice, there's that fine line between justice and vengeance, right? And the characters in the Marvel Universe, like, like Daredevil, for example, will struggle between that line that they don't want to cross. And But they don't cross the line because they don't want to become like the villains that they're attacking. And was it the famous line by Frederick Nietzsche? Mm. Beware of fighting monsters, for you may become one. Right. Or, or yeah, not one of his other uh, famous uh, quotes was, Do not look long into the abyss, for it will look long back into you. <laughs> so how yeah. does the Batman character or the Daredevil characters and others that we see in these, in these superhero mythologies stop themselves from crossing that line, from becoming like the villains or the... the, the these these psychopaths that they're trying to rid the world of. Well, they don't they don't cross the line for life. Some of them don't cross the line for other areas. But let's comment on that. Let's unpack that. Yeah. So in my opinion, I think it's again it's the idea of trajectory, right? The the sort of ultimate love. Batman ultimately loves justice, and though he faces uh, villains all the time and the temptation to you know kind of clean the streets with them in in, in ways that would permanently um, disabuses of the the need for the Batman right. he right. holds back because his central love is so strong if it wasn't strong he would just become another um, vigilante who you know the Punisher who decides it's easier to simply kill people right right uh, Frank Castle is a fascinating study but go ahead right so in, in this case Batman because I think the sort of inner integrity the ability to hold on to the first love which is justice um, then he is able to, even in these moments, hold back the particular acts that would prevent him from um, falling into that. Um, Wolverine is a, a, is a weaker case of that, where he, his first love, I think, is still good in some broad sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but because of his nature, he, is, he struggles more with this. He sometimes is the bad, and then he sometimes is the good, but he's still looking, so to speak, upward. Uh, and his path is much more rocky than Batman's. Um, and so Batman, I think, is the superior hero. But again, if we don't have that strong first love, if we're not clear about what our first love ought to be, why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing, we can get caught up in the noise. You know, you and I are professors. It'd be very easy to get caught up in the noise of tenure and mm -hmm. publishing books and, and all this, the bells and whistles. You know, we, got a, we both have been married for, what, 15 years and I got five kids and, you know, <laughs> yeah. house and cars and all that. And just the, the noise, which is pleasant noise often. But if you're not clear about why we're here, it's all for naught, right? The rich man and Lazarus, right? We, we see the story yeah. there. Right? And What's when, your first love? Can you hold on to that? Right. The hero holds on to that. And when life gets dark and you no longer see the sun, that question becomes powerful as it, as it pierces his soul. If you don't have that focus, that purpose, then it's very, very easy to give in to... Uh, ways to alleviate that, such as immoral temptations and cutting, making shortcuts in our research, um, cheating here and there. I'm not just talking about morally, uh, sexually, but I'm also talking about academically as well in other areas. Very easy to, to cut corners when I lose my central purpose, my goal. Um, was it Martin Luther King said it well? Those who have not found anything worth uh, dying for ultimately have not found anything worth living for either. What is that right. thing that I'm after? What is my goal? What is my purpose? If I don't have it, then I don't know. Everything else seems to be in flux. And I think this is what makes these heroes so good, right? Because they are men and women often, um, but certainly men of s central focus. Mm -hmm. You know, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, they, they, Captain America, they have a kind of focus. They know what they're supposed to be doing. And even when it gets dark, you know, they may not always know the method. You know, in, in Civil War, Iron Man and Captain America might argue about the method of how to do this or that, right? Mm -hmm. But but the question is, what's that central focus? How strong is that? Uh, is your will to hold on to that thing, which you know, Penelope, right? Go back there. Right. How, how can she hold on to the hope of her husband over you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 years, right? Whatever. Uh, can you hold on to that? 
right? Um, this is where you need what C.S. Lewis calls the obstinacy of, of belief, right? When all the doubt and all the, the, the chaos and the dark night of the soul, as Mother Teresa uh, herself, for example, experienced, mm-hmm. can you hold on to that, right? Um, and, and is it worth uh, holding on to is a question. And you brought that up earlier where uh, what makes God great and good is not just his omnipotence, but it's what makes him Optimus Prime is his goodness. <laughs> Absolutely, right? and Absolutely. not not the capitalizing Optimus Prime, <laughs> the, the Transformers character. Although yeah. he is a form of a hero, God he does is the sacrifice. Optimus Prime, though, yeah, yeah, he sacrifice himself. I'm looking in your book, um, imitating the saints, which I recommend to my readers. Uh, you have a scene here, of course, going back to one of my favorite heroes, Spider-Man, where Peter and Mary Jane have been living apart for some time, and they go through the period where he's flying over Los Angeles, and he talks about. You talk about in the book how um, there's some kind of a providence that puts them together. Do you want to go over that a little bit? Do you, or you would you like me to read it and then you want to comment on it? Oh well, you can read it if you want, or I can say it would show. Yeah, yeah. Show. It, it would be okay. easier if you if you did it, but I mean, um, just to hear it from you because you wrote this. But um, are you you do you want me to read it? Or you want to? I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll I'll, I'll tell you what the story is about. Yeah. There. So so the yeah. readers who haven't heard about okay. it haven't. I don't know so, about it. How that providence works in there. Okay. So this this particular story. Um, Peter is facing a situation with Mary Jane. She's got a nice offer, modeling offer, I think, in uh, the opposite side of the country, California. He's in New York. Um, and, uh, you know, she goes there. He's in New York. And, the, 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 again, the classic dilemma of first and second loves kind of takes place. Is it the career or is it the marriage, right? Is it the relationship or the, the, the academic success or whatever else it would be, professional success that matters. And again, what will you choose? Because you know it's sort of naive to imagine you can have everything. Some of us have everything. Most of us won't. We'll have to make a choice. Um, and count yourself lucky if you don't have to make a choice in one way. Mm-hmm. Another way, you never know what you're going to choose. You never know what you would actually be. Well, as it happens, sometimes life gets complicated and it's hard to choose. But uh, in the story, uh, there's this moment where um, they're separated and the relationship is in danger and as it happens there's a lightning storm and Mary Jane's airplane uh, is diverted from uh, she's flying from New York and um, uh, sort of California and Peter's uh, uh, coming in from New York and they're diverted and it so happens that through this moment of lightning they both land I believe it's in Denver it's been a while since I uh, mm-hmm. read that one and they land in Denver which is a major hub uh, but still, the chance of this meeting, when you know, when hope seemed to be lost, the relationship's over, um, and there's this moment of, of uh, that brings them together. And in the the comic, it, it's it's talked about as providence, right? When good men and good women sometimes fail in their own efforts to make the right choice, or or are just too exhausted by things. You know, there's moments where uh, we sometimes see this, where God will step in and, and you know, give you a wink eye, if you like. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and in this case, we have this instance of what, uh, in the comic, it's described as kind of a providential bringing together. They're supposed to be together. Right, right. And they see the hand of God behind that. Absolutely, yeah. Br- bringing them together. That. Yeah. And, you know, Peter, uh, Spider-Man's actually unique for this because we, we see the character of Jesus, for example, appear in the comics uh, as a homeless man, for example, in certain mm-hmm. cases, and mm-hmm. and so the Spider-Man comics um, are they're very interested in the um, taking seriously not just the supernatural, of course, but but these sort of higher theological themes, even ones that are sort of more than just a sort of broad supernatural, but um, there's some sort of uh, more specific Judeo-Christian and even specifically Christian elements in them. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 nice that they kind of warrant that. I think that's part of the appeal of Spider-Man. Right, right. It is. It's interesting coming from Stan Lee who tries to avoid these things in a lot of his work. Yeah, um, again, yeah. The, best, the best efforts of people sometimes get thwarted by... Uh, <laughs> hey, maybe Providence? Maybe Providence, huh? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> hey, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Hal Jordan, one of my favorite characters. Yeah. Now, Hal Jordan, sure. uh, through this series, at least, at least a number of years back, ends up taking the power of the ring, which can help him almost do uh, almost anything with his ring. Of course, there's a limit to that. Um, but one of the things he says, and you have this in your book, where how Jordan ends up failing, he ends up letting the ring somehow corrupt him, where he ends up taking on more and doing more than he should be doing for the greater good uh, in the utilitarian type of perspective. And the horrors we are able as a human race to be able to do for the greater good, quote unquote, are just limitless. 
And he says in here, and you have this quote here, where I am a murderer. I cause pain for everyone I've ever loved. Vengeance isn't mine, it's theirs. I don't deserve this power. I deserve punishment. Mm. Hal Jordan ends up becoming paraplexic. Parallax? Yeah. Yeah. Parallax, yeah. Uh, Of course, later on, he finds some kind of redemption through that. But can you comment on the the ability to take on the oldest power and not let it corrupt you? Uh, Of course, we could touch on with Superman and others who has almost unlimited power. But if somebody very similar to him had that power, and there's a lot of stories talking about Earth 1, Earth 2, Superman, and others, who did get the same power but used it in the wrong way. Let's talk about let's let's, uh, let's unpack in the area of the superheroes those who have this ultimate power, but some get corrupted by it and some don't. What's the difference? Okay, well, I think uh, the the important meditation there first of all is the question of between objective morality and ultimately something that's subjective. This the true hero in in all of our superhero mythologies are what we might call some sort of deontologist or some sort of natural law theorist. They believe that there's objective moral principles of some sort, Mm -hmm. meaning that some things would always be wrong. Now, some things might just be generally wrong, right? Generally, you shouldn't uh, deceive your neighbor, but sometimes you ought to, right? But there's some things that we must never do, right? We must never murder where murder would be an unjust killing of a person, Mm -hmm. or we mustn't ever torture a child just for the fun of it, Mm -hmm. right? We can always see that as objectively wrong. The utilitarian approach says, we want to maximize the greatest good for the greatest number. And uh, and that's called what's right. And it doesn't matter if we have to step on, if we have to uh, kill children in the process, or if we have to mm-hmm. uh, remove human rights in the process. Matter. It, it matters about maximizing non-moral goods. Right, They're crushing and, the uh, minority for the benefit of the majority. Right, So, but again, so when Hal Jordan, he flirts with that utilitarian principle, and we can see that when he becomes the utilitarian, he becomes the monster the villain, right? Well, he can maximize a lot of great good by killing a lot of undesirable people. But the problem is, we shouldn't just kill people who are locked up in jail, who may not be murderers or warrant death, right? Um, Shoplifting people don't deserve death, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) But for Hal Jordan, it might make the world simpler, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, again, the question is, are there some things we mustn't do? The utilitarian says, ultimately, uh, no, there's no principle that stops us from doing that. there's other reasons for not doing that, perhaps, but no objective principle. But the hero does, and when Hal Jordan is able to recognize the the um, the injustice of the utilitarian perspective, he is then able to recognize that he is or has murdered. I am a murderer, he says. I am, if you like, a sinner. Mm. I deserve punishment. Um, and again, the, what principle? motivates him to recognize the wrongness of the utilitarian perspective, if not an objective moral type of principle, a natural law, if you like, or some sort of deontological principle, um, which, you know, again, has this sort of divine uh, transcendence, right? Moral principles that man have not made um, are divine, right? And so, again, recognizing the divine ethic allows him to kind of recognize his own sinful state. And upon recognizing a sinful state, he is only then able to start the road back to becoming a hero. And again, he is able to achieve that. But it requires the kind of repentance and recognition that uh, his ethic was flawed, that he was a sinner, in fact. And this and issue so again, it's a great story. Yes, it does. Um, I don't know of any great stories I've read, whether they're mythology in the Norse mythology, Greek mythology, um, even uh, Native American Indian mythology, African mythology, superhero mythologies, where relativism is taken seriously. None right. of these things take none of these stories take relativism seriously. Uh, in order for you to have any type of hero, you need to have some kind of objective right and an objective wrong, contrary to many popular opinions. Although, Adam, I'm finding in my, I mean, just the political spectrum out there, the left and right, the battle, yep, <laughs> you find yep, yep. these these leftist ideologues who are um, very um, progressive, who are arguing strongly academically that virtue. Is a man or, or virtue with a capital V is man made. There are no absolute wrongs, but but Trump is absolutely wrong. Um, <laughs> that, you know, uh, not giving uh, LGBT people their, their proper rights is absolutely wrong. Uh, oil right. barons absolutely wrong. Hold on a minute, buddy. I thought there weren't any absolute wrongs. Matter of fact, interesting. My um, one of my students just last week turned in a paper arguing for relativism, hmm. and I did the Argu- classic line. I gave him an F because I didn't like his jacket. <laughs> <laughs> 
And of course, he argued back and forth. So hold on, buddy. If you're really right that there is yeah. absolutely wrong, what's really wrong with me, the absolute authority in this realm, giving you an F because I don't like your jacket? Of course, I'll make up a reason for the deans, but that's really the reason. Right, uh, right, right, right. I mean, he's saying, okay, he's, he's rethinking this paper and he wrote me back. Okay, I got your point. Can you help me argue my position better? No, <laughs> your position is self-destructive. It doesn't work. Right. Uh, relativism is a problem. Let's, um, I mean, we could go on and on about that, but I like what G.K. Chesterton said about this. There must be a rich moral soil for any great artistic growth. Um, in order for you to be really moral, there has to be this soil that you grow in. And it has to be something more than just mere reason alone. Mm. Would you add to that? Yeah, so again, I think it ties into, um, you know, reason is the, probably the most important aspect of what we're about, right? We, by reason, we understand what's right and wrong in some important ways. But the, the, the flowering of human beings requires um, a kind of inspiration that's much more concrete. Mm. It requires the pictures. It requires the stories. It requires the theater. It requires movies. It requires all these things. And um, but again, a successful um, a play or book or story, otherwise, again, there's there's depends on what you mean by successful, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But if you look at things that people come back to again and again and again, mm -hmm. they're often ones that have this sort of strong, either moral figure in there somewhere that we we are attracted to, right. or the narrative itself has a kind of well, we call it timeless, right? What is timeless? Um, you know, there's always the ones that are like you know unique to their culture. You know, a T.S. Eliot's early poetry tells us a lot about the the time period he's writing in, and so we'll come back to that when we study that time period. But we don't go to some of those types of things um, and call them timeless. They don't have the kind of universal appeal mm. that the Odyssey does, or you know, Lord of the Rings probably will. Superman's been going you know for 75 years strong, and um, he's going to have that timeless appeal as long as they don't. Uh, Start to change his ethics too much, right? Right, right, not too much. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, yeah, the stories that have that will have this kind of appeal. You know, even uh, I did a book on um, I did a book on Japanese manga. Hmm. Uh, the Japanese uh, uh, Shinto are, are are relativists, and uh, Buddhists are kind of relativists of a sort as well. And so you see a lot of relativist themes in in manga. But what's fascinating about the Japanese comic books and Japanese heroes—they're not really superheroes is that the ones that have the most appeal are often the ones that are the most, despite maybe their best efforts, kind of universal in their, um, in their approaches to good and bad. Uh, they they kind of can't help themselves but be mm -hmm. uh, better than their own philosophy. Right. You know, right. Even Star Wars is a good example, right? Yeah. Ultimately, yeah. what's the force except the sort of pantheistic mm -hmm. or Taoistic thing that sort of transcends good and bad? Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not inherently moral, mm -hmm. but... The fact of the matter is, when we watch the movies, especially like Star Wars, you know, New Hope or whatever, we never get the sense of sort of this vague, you know, beyond good and evil. No. We're very clear about the good is good and the bad is bad in an objective sense. And it's only in some of the Star Wars novels where they start to flirt with the idea of, well, maybe good is bad, bad is good, and maybe yeah. these are just uptight Jedi, you know, who are trying to kind of hold the order for their own purposes or whatever else. Those ones just flop. No one, no one's interested in that kind of narrative. No, they, no, they it goes against our, our very nature as being human, isn't it? You're right. Yeah. St. Paul says we kick against the goad, right? We yeah. kick against the spiky thing, or otherwise, when we try to fight against some of the objectivity. And and St. Paul talks about Apostle Paul about the whole law written upon the heart in Romans one. Right. Uh, let's uh, let's start bringing this interview down. Um, start landing, uh, uh, landing the plane if we can. In uh, <laughs> in. Let's go back. One of the main themes that I've been working on lately, and that I'm really absolutely fascinated about, Adam, is this hero journey. That everything from Sophocles' uh, Oedipus Rex, which I found to be one of the greatest stories in, in history, wonderful story about struggle and the battle with the Sphinx and others, and battle within himself. Um, Joseph Campbell talks about this this cycle, the cyclical cycle that he writes about in his book, The Hero of a Thousand Faces where the cycle is in almost every hero and every culture and every mythology and every legend. And the cycle goes as follows. There's this hero, an unknown figure from this unknown clan, an unknown village, who gets this call from somewhere to uh, rise up above the circumstances he's in and to fight against it. The hero then rejects it, rejects the message, 
goes back into himself, but he finds in rejecting the message, he's constantly haunted by it and rises back up to find, with some help, some supernatural help, he finds a way to rise and find that hero within himself. He goes out to fight the villain. He, he, he builds, in the process of that, he has to overcome these temptations. Mm-hmm. Among himself, right? And he he fails, he fails, but then he succeeds and he overcomes them. And then he fights his fatest, greatest villain, and he fails. He's killed, or he's wiped out, or he's crushed. And then Campbell says this in almost all the stories: the hero rises, if not from the dead, at least from of, of an epic failure. He comes mm-hmm. back stronger and more powerful than he's ever been before. Wipes out the villain and becomes the hero, the, the hero that he never thought he'd be when he was before. And then, mm-hmm. and through that process of transformation and atonement and redemption, he now goes back and returns to where he originally was to tell those around him where he was in his village the, the, the truth of, of the, the, the reality of the cosmos, that there is something beyond ourselves. That theme is in every single story in every worldview. I'm going, you know what, Campbell, that can't be the case. So I started reading a lot of these. I'm finding <laughs> it everywhere, Adam. In the yeah. comics, everywhere. I mean, can you comment about this? Because and then connect that, of course, to what Lewis calls the myth that became real. Yeah, you know, I, my favorite example of this is one that uh, I think hits almost closest to home. You know, in the Bible, there's a story of um, the prophets of Baal or Baal, right, and the prophets of Yahweh, God. And we know that in that story, the the, the, the purpose is, have no other gods before me. Yahweh, God, is God and only God to be worshipped. Mm-hmm. But Baal or Baal is very interesting. If you read his myth, it goes like this. One day, this God, Baal or Baal, he's a younger god, the son of the higher god, he's up on a mountain and there's a lot of noise going on and the god of the dead, Mot, uh, is disturbed by this kind of uh, partying that's going on and um, and he, he, he threatens to kind of cause havoc and destruction on the people, withering the vines, making things not grow. And so Baal, Baal, uh, he goes down on this hero's journey into the underworld. He descends into hell and fights against Mot and death, which is to say, and death wins. Mm. The hero dies. Now, in this story, he gets a little help. Um, Baal gets a little help from his sister. But the ultimate uh, goal here is that uh, Baal rises from the dead, mm. right? And in doing so, of course, he is able to, well, he doesn't destroy death, but he, he puts death in its place. He keeps death confined to the underworld. And Baal rises again, and as he does that, things grow and people flourish, and they're happy. And there's much rejoicing. And he's the savior of his people. So, again, the story of Baal is very interesting because it gives you the story of Christ in some ways. And yet no one believes Baal was real. Hmm. There's no historical evidence for that. There's no archaeological evidence for Baal as a real person. Mm -hmm. Uh, But with Christ, we have lots of evidence for him being a historical person and even for the resurrection. You know, Gary Habermas is excellent on this, right? Right. Uh, There's lots of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus after his actual death. And so, again, it's Baal, in some very interesting way, foreshadows Christ. But we mustn't worship Baal. Hmm. Right? We, oh, from the Old Testament, we must not, right? That's, that's a capital sin. But to fail to appreciate the story of Baal is in some way to miss out uh, a reinforcer of exactly what God does in Christ. That's interesting. And I never heard that story before from Baal. That would be interesting. I should look into that more. Well, you know, the reason is because Christians don't like talking about a character that is a clear villain in the Old Testament. Right, right. But my, my approach is Lewis, right? Again, worshipping a god, another god, is the problem. But appreciating their story and seeing how it reinforces the story of God is the precise and proper use of it. Mm. These people have these stories for a reason. We right, mustn't right. insult the things God, the gifts God gives people. So, have, again, yeah. I, I think that's, uh, that's what we want to look for. And, There's appreciation and yet... You know, don't fall into the trap that all religions are the same, right? No, 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 of course not. And now, Lewis uh, would say that this Jesus is a myth that became real, right? He's the, the myth that took on life. There's actually a historical evidence for that. I was making copies at um, uh, Kinko's a while back, and a guy saw a cover of my paper. It's about um, arguing for some theological work that I was doing. And he said, oh, you're arguing for the existence of God? I said, yeah. He said, well, um, I may be arguing for the existence of the spaghetti monster. I, said, oh, I wonder where I heard that before. And this is one yeah. of the common uh, uh, mantras that's spewed by the new atheists. Yeah. And then we had a conversation, and one of my points was, well, the Spaghetti Master and all these others that you're making up don't have on their resume <laughs> uh, <laughs> what Yahweh has on his resume, what Jesus does. 
historical, right. accurate records that are more reliable than any other ancient document in the history of the world. You have this stuff there. It's there for you. Yes, it's a mythos, but it's a myth that had dirt under its fingernails and blood on its brow and so walked it. among us. Wow! And that myth is in every culture. It's there. God himself has put it there, has he not? Um, how he does that, and it's just, it's just fascinating to me how, how God draws these things back to us and he speaks through the shadows of the, the, the stories to bring us back to the true story itself, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, take, um, let's, let's start wrapping this up here with, with some final comments you'd like to make on, on uh, why we should continue to uh, or, or use the superhero mythology to reach a more general audience. Uh, the movie industry right now, the top five or ten films in the, in the history of Hollywood right now are more superhero films. Mm. The Avengers or others. Um, I was at a recent comic book store, and they'll tell me their business is up. Um, their business is doing extremely well um, because of this uh, resurgence of interest in that field. Uh, how can we continue to use that, Adam, to reach a broader generation um, of people? Yeah, so I think it's an important thing that we do encourage it. I think it's important that Christians do encourage it. I think that there's a lot more um, uh, interest in doing so nowadays. We're having this conversation. You know, 40 years ago, you know, comic book code time, you know, there was a lot of hostility among Christians toward this genre right. as scandalous or trivial or other things. Uh, recognizing that God speaks through stories, that life is a story, mm -hmm. that there are certain types of motifs that are not reducible down to simple uh, concepts. The story gives us something that's unique. And recognizing that when we love Superman, for example, mm. in his true moments, or Aragon, or Odysseus, or uh, Hercules, or whoever it might be, you know, even another pagan god, right? Right. Which recognize their story and love that story. In some ways, it's sort of Dante-esque, Dante right? You know, it's a signpost pointing up to something higher, right? It's that that recognizing in the, the, the concrete, flawed, particular, that universal. You know, the pointer to God, I think, if we chase it and follow it correctly, and this is where we need our theology and philosophy. We need a little bit of help, right? <laughs> I, I know plenty of people who like comic books who are uh -huh. happy talking about, you know, um, how many action figures they've collected this week or, you know, mm -hmm. how many limited edition, and they, they get sidetracked from what superhero mythology is supposed to be about. It's not about the action figures or the undies, or you know, um, or you know, certain types of trivial arch uh, things. It, it's about these stories that point to something higher and more real that we need to meditate on, and will invigorate us. Right? Life can be challenging and hard, and uh, knowing our, our way and what in, to be inspired on our way. That's one thing that superheroes can do terrifically well. Is anything, so, as we close this conversation, Adam, do you have any um, uh, final thoughts on any stories that have invigorated you or comics that have um, uh, sparked an, uh, a more vigorous uh, ethical stance in your own life as a husband, as a father, as a professor to help you be better? And I'm thinking of one of my own, um, uh, one great novel I've read, a uh, graphic novel, was uh, Triumph and Tragedy. It was Doctor okay. Strange and Doctor Doom. Oh, yes, yeah. Where Dr. I Doom know. wants to find his mother was a witch and she was after her death called into hell because she sold her soul to the devil, so to speak. So Doom right. goes to seek the aid of Dr. Strange to go into the Mephisto's realm to acquire his soul of his mom. And almost like a, a Shakespearean tragedy, and there's a twist in, uh, after twist after twist in this novel, which I found to be brilliant. Uh, talks about the virtues, and um, for those of you who are uh, big fans of this, excuse me for the whistleblowing on the, uh, <laughs> spoiler effects on this. But Doom, yeah. in the process, ends up betraying Strange, but he does it on purpose to give Strange, Doctor Strange, to the Mephisto in exchange for his mother, mm. because he's a greater catch. Mm. And um, Mephisto, in a sense, says, um, "Fine, let's do it," and he trades him and, and he captures um, Strange, and in the process, releases his mother's soul to Doom. But, and this is where the catch comes in, this is where the Shakespearean tragedy comes in uh, and the brilliance of it. She's given a choice. Your soul is now being released from hell for his. Do you mm. take it? And if she says yes, I'll take it. She deserves to stay in hell even longer. <laughs> but the fact that she says no, even hell, the gates of hell cannot hold her purity. I would mm. rather stay in hell than one soul be tortured for me. 
And Doom okay. gives his mother that choice. <laughs> and of course, those of you who want to read it, I don't want to give you the spoiler of what actually happens. But it's brilliant and it's uh, work. And I, I enjoyed that film and saying that in the deepest, darkest times of my life, um, am I willing to sacrifice my desires, my goals, my dreams to help another? And in that, God blesses. God gives me hope, gives me hope and finds a blessing in my, and in dying you live and in giving you, you receive, right? That, that concept right. of scripture. That inspired me. That story I really liked. Um, any ones for you, any com uh, comes to mind? Yeah, well, too many to mention. There's many, yeah. Just one so the, the Spider-Man one that you mentioned before, that, that's one of my favorites. It's one that actually brought a tear to my eye when I read it. Uh, Moment in Time, I think it's called. My, my first comic that I got me really excited about mythology and the potential for this was back when I was a teenager. That's the Infinity Gauntlet. Oh, yeah. Which many people thought, right? It, it, I don't think there's any great ethic in it, but mm. the, the sort of scope of what's out there, the sort of ontology of the larger universe, I think was, uh, was fascinating for me. It opened up new thoughts. But one I'd recommend that uh, you know many of us have seen, I'd recommend watching the movie Thor again, the, the, the one that came out a few years back. Mm -hmm. Look for the Christ-type elements in there. Look for the hero who learns uh, what really matters. Look for the hero who dies. Look for the hero who resurrects because he's worthy. Mm. Look for the hero who saves. Watch it with that, that lens in mind. And it becomes so much more than just a superhero movie. Yeah, it becomes one of these these terrific things that that rise above it all. So that, that's that's one I would recommend to audience who may not be able to track down all the graphic novels that we have on our shelves. Right, right. right. Too many. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, that that Thor film has majestic scenery and cinematography, and the, the throne room of Asgard is just magnificently set up, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. And uh, with the issue, I'll just quickly come to mind with um, the Infinity Gauntlet, uh, Thanos being the ultimate utilitarian, right? With his gauntlet, yeah. he wants to bring all the world down and you know, reduce the population, and hey, the world would be a better place. Um, of course, he has a more nefarious uh, deeds, and and there you go. He's capitalized. He's he's being uh, used in the new um, Avengers. Well, right, right. To see yeah. how they use him. Yeah. So, Which is interesting. Uh, Dark side and Thanos. You know, is there a connection who's, there? Who's going to win there? <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the similarities between the two the, the two arc right. villains is fascinating to me. Adam, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this fascinating topic, and I hope we'll continue to um, to uh, to engage our minds and revigorate our souls by by thinking deeper as we read and uh, navigate our ways through these uh, wonderful novels and books. Thank you for your time. Thanks very much, Caldoun. Appreciate you. Okay, take care. All right. All right, man. All right, bye.